Welcome to Policy Ish Talk, an ACI podcast where we sit down with policy experts, industry leaders, and top academics to discuss today's toughest social, economic, and policy questions. I'm your host, Chris Bushuk. My guest today is Robert Popovian, the founder of the strategic consulting firm Conquest Advisors. He also serves as the chief science policy officer at the Global Healthy Living Foundation. He is the vice president of health economics and policy for Consensus and a senior health policy fellow at the Progressive Policy Institute. He previously also served as the vice president of U.S. government relations at Pfizer. Robert is a recognized authority on health economics and has published extensively and has been referenced on the impact of biopharmaceuticals and health policies on costs and clinical outcomes in the most prominent medical sources and media publications. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. So rising drug prices continue to be a top concern for Americans, and rightly so. What do you think is responsible for today's high drug prices? Well, there's two things that are responsible for the high drug prices. So one is that we've moved into an era of precision medicine, which we are developing drugs for a small number of patients, while the cost of research and development has stayed the same and has been growing, in fact. So instead of being able to innovate drugs that are going to treat large populations, therefore you could spread the cost in the millions and hundreds of millions of people, you're really spreading the cost in a small number. Therefore, to recoup the investment that pharma companies are making and the risk they're taking regarding research and development and the return that they need, the prices have been much higher per person or per capita for those drugs than uh, in the past. And we've had, uh, we could spread the cost, as I said, with a larger number of patients. The second reason is the way that we price and the way we contract for medicines in the United States. The way we price these drugs today is irrelevant of what the net cost is to whether it's an insurer, an employer, or a pharmacy benefit manager. And because of the contractual tactics that are used, which is primarily rebate contracting, it incentivizes pharmaceutical companies to increase their prices Because ultimately, for them to be able to get their medicines on a formulary, uh, either through a pharmacy benefit manager or an insurer, they have to pay the higher rebates. So what drives the prices to increase is the insatiable need by the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurers to collect more and more rebates. And thus, the higher the rebates, the better placement those drugs have on formularies. So do you think drug pricing and healthcare spending reforms are needed currently? Absolutely. One, we need to start paying for outcomes on both cases rather than the current model that we we pay for services, both in medical services and hospital care and also in pharmaceuticals. We need to go to a model that we're paying for keeping patients healthy rather than a fee-for-service model, which is traditionally being used in the United States. So yes, there needs to be reforms done, and the reform starts the way that we pay for healthcare services in the United States, whether it's hospital care, pharmaceutical 
expenditures or medical services through providers. So, Robert, we've seen a number of proposed solutions in the past few years that all resonate with recycled bad ideas like price controls, drug importation, international pricing index, most favorite nations, etc. Why do you think we keep seeing the same ideas being recycled and what do these proposals have in common? The one thing they have in common that none of them are going to meaningfully help patients with their out-of-pocket costs. That's what they have in common. And uh, rightly or wrongly, that is the number one thing that patients think about when it comes to pharmaceutical expenditures. In fact, if you look at the polling that's been done repeatedly over the years, for example, the most recent one a couple of years ago that was done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, they showed although the patients are interested in the government to get involved in drug price negotiations, as strongly they have reservations about uh, the government's involvement, and they only want the government to be involved if, one, it reduces their out-of-pocket costs for their medicines. Number two, it does not impact uh, the innovation model that we currently have in the United States. And number three, that it does not reduce access to their medicines. So that's why I think these recycled ideas keep coming back, because ultimately uh, there is no way that they're going to help the patient. Now, are there better solutions out there? Yes, there are. Starting with what we just discussed in the previous question is that how do we pay for healthcare in the United States as we move away from a fee-for-service model to more of a model that is more of a global capitation model that really pays for outcomes rather than sick care? So if we look specifically at importing prescription drugs from other countries, would such a policy bring drug prices down? Not at all. And the reason being is that importation of medicines is a ruse that has been peddled for many decades. And it was brought up in the 90s and the 2000s prior to the passage of the Medicare Modernization Act. And what you saw is that patients, although they were talking about it, they never utilized it. The second reason that it's not going to work is because Majority of the newer drugs that are coming to the market are biologics or drugs that have they require special handling. Those drugs are going to be exempt from any type of an importation model because it's, they're not going to be able to be transported effectively and safely to the patient. The third reason is that as we've gone to a marketplace where 90% of the market is now generics, and the majority, uh, nine out of 10 prescriptions dispensed in a pharmacy is a generic medicine. It is important to note that generic medicines in the United States, we have a very competitive market and we have one of the lowest generic prices in the world because of that competition. So I believe, again, importation is a talking point that politicians like to use. Uh, is it going to bring meaningful change or help with patients' out-of-pocket costs? It is not. And frankly, it's going to create other problems such as importing potentially counterfeit medicines that can ultimately harm the patient instead of helping them. What about the idea of tying Medicare's drug prices to an index of foreign drug prices? Well, Chris, 
one thing we need to step back and say, what is the comparison model? Are we comparing prices of the United States from Apple to Apple comparison or is it an Apple-Orange comparison? One thing we know is that in the United States, the retail price of the medicines is not what insurers, employers, the government ultimately pays. It's most often paid by the patient who has no healthcare insurance, or sometimes even at that point, they may get discounts. So we really don't know what the price is, the net price of these medicines are. And that's because of the convoluted way of how we contract with medicines in the U.S., which is through the rebate contracting scheme instead of a net price contracting model. So first thing we need to do is acknowledge that we do pay for health services at a much higher rate in the United States than any other country, developed country in the world. That's without a doubt. We pay more for physician services, for hospital care, for laboratory care, and for pharmaceuticals. But before we do any kind of a indexing, we need to know what is the net amount that we're paying for drugs in the U.S. and the net amount that the insurers, the pharmacy benefit managers, the government, and the employers end up paying, and then do the cross-comparison to the ex-U.S. countries and the developed countries to see what they're paying. Right now, what we're doing is a comparison of apples to oranges. Instead, we need to do a apples to apples comparison. At that point, then we can decide what is the value that we get for paying the higher amount. The second reality is that it's important to note is that without a doubt on the pharmaceutical space, we pay more because unfortunately, all of the expenditures related to research and development has befallen on the U.S. consumer. Is that fair? I believe it is not. And therefore, we need to do something other than indexing to sort of entice and encourage and even push the developed countries to start investing in the R&D expenditures and not have the U.S. consumer be responsible for the entire model, that, uh, of financing of the entire model as it currently exists. Right now, Congress is reconsidering a piece of proposed legislation known as the Lower Drug Cost Now Act or also otherwise known as HR3. Can you tell us a bit about what the proposal entails? Well, the proposal has many aspects to it besides, uh, so let's talk about some of the proposals that actually make sense that needs to happen. And then we'll go get into the ones that are really not fruitful or it's going to create problems. The part that actually makes sense and needs to happen, and there are other, other legislations that have been proposed. In fact, Senate Finance, committee last year proposed a similar legislation is to fix the Medicare Part D model. So what does fixing mean? So two things. Number one, the Medicare Part D benefit design needs to change. Currently, as it exists, it makes no sense because it's not devised as a traditional benefit model. So the number two thing that it does, the HR3 does, which again, the Senate Finance also had in its legislative efforts, is to cap the out-of-pocket cost for Medicare patients for their Part D program. Two things are important. Number one, Medicare Part D is the only insurance entity that we have in the United States regarding drugs and other healthcare services that patients do not have a cap for out-of-pocket costs. So what HR3 or the Senate Finance Bill would do is to cap out-of-pocket costs. So the good part is 
that it does promote a rational benefit design change for Medicare Part D, which everybody, it's a bipartisan agreement that needs to happen. And HR3 also does is cap out-of-pocket costs for Medicare patients at a certain level, which, again, it has bipartisan support. Those are the good parts. Now, what are the bad parts? The bad parts, obviously, is the indexing part that we just spoke about, which just tries to index the prices of the medicines to international prices. And as we discussed, we don't really know what is, in, what is the comparison of apples to apples or apples to oranges. The second thing it does, it acknowledges in the legislation, and in fact, when this legislation was talked about last year, a lot of the congressional members acknowledge that it's going to hamper the research and development efforts, and it's going to reduce the number of innovative drugs coming into the market. So that's the second bad thing it does. So besides the indexing, it also introduces the concept of government negotiation of drug prices in Medicare. And again, as I alluded to in the beginning, the population, the patient population is really torn about that. They do believe overwhelmingly that government should engage in drug price negotiation. But as strongly and overwhelmingly, they don't want any reduction in innovation. They don't want any kind of reduction in access to medicines. And they want to make sure that the only reason government would engage in something like that is to reduce their out-of-pocket costs, which none of those three things that the patients want is going to happen through this legislation. So HR3 has some good things and some overwhelmingly bad things in it. And without a doubt, if the bad things pass, as this package as a whole passes, it is going to impact the innovation model in the United States. And that has been acknowledged by the congressional members who are basically supporting this legislation. So we talked about how it compares to other proposals, right? Uh, but would it actually affect drug prices? Would it bring down drug prices and healthcare costs? I'm not sure about that because it's it's one thing to talk about how government's going to um, negotiate prices, for example, right, Chris? And one of the things that patients don't want is reduction to access. We know as soon as government gets engaged in drug price negotiations, one of the ways things that they need to do is, is walk away, right? To say, we're not going to cover certain medicines. And that's when it gets really interesting because as much as, as I said, patients are interested in the government's help in negotiating for drug prices, they're as strongly opposed to any kind of reduction to access to medicines. And we see this in other countries. The countries that have a single-payer system that set prices for medicines generally have lower number of drugs that are accessible to them. And in fact, a GAO report that recently came out acknowledged that because when they were trying to do a cross-comparison between U.S. prices and retail prices to the uh, developed country retail prices, which is, in my opinion, wrong because we don't know what the net price is that everybody ends up paying, even they acknowledged in their report that they had to remove about a dozen or two dozen drugs from the analysis because those drugs either are non-existent in those developed markets, basically they're not available those, in those countries, those medicines, or if they're available, they have very restricted access with regards to the therapeutic areas that they can be used in. So in other words, with price controls, with uh, government getting engaged in drug price negotiations, 
we need to acknowledge that there will be a reduction in access to innovative medicines. And I don't think the U.S. population at this point, the patient population, is ready to acknowledge that and support that. So you are definitely concerned of like how it would affect in the innovation landscape. So how would it affect investments in that space? Well, the more riskier innovations uh, and riskier investments will not take place. So if we're looking at drug disease areas such as uh, ALS, there's going to be less investment or Alzheimer's because that those are riskier propositions. There's been very little ability to crack uh, those models regarding innovation. Some of the cancer innovation may go away. So you would see is investment in areas that are well-established and patients already have access to medicine. So what we're doing is that we're going to do a disservice for patients who are suffering from, med- from diseases that really there isn't, there aren't many opportunities for them to get cures. Innovation obviously takes time and money. So how can we balance the time and money spent developing new technologies and treatments with what patients can afford to pay? I think there are several things that we need to do. Number one, we need to have a serious discussion about how do we price, uh, as I mentioned, pharmaceuticals in the United States and get away from this rebate uh, contracting scheme that we currently have, because it has been a ruse for the last three, four decades that we've been talking about how formulary decisions are made based on clinical data. And the reality is that they're not. They're basically the access to formulary drugs are basically based upon how much rebates a pharmacy benefit manager or an insurer collects. So this whole thing about clinical efficacy is really the bearer of what drugs get on the formulary is a falsehood. And it's a ruse that's been propagated upon everybody in the healthcare system. So that's the number one thing. We need to get away from this rebate contracting scheme and go to a net price contracting scheme. So at that point, we will net know what are we talking about regarding price. The second thing that we need to do is start paying for outcomes. As I mentioned in the beginning, we need to have a different payment model for the United States for all healthcare services, not just pharmaceuticals, but for hospital care, for physician services, et cetera. And for pharmaceuticals, we need to go into what I believe is value-based contracting or outcome-based contracting. And really defining what the outcome is going to be from medicines that patients take. And if those outcomes are not reached, then either the insurer, the pharmacy benefit manager, or the patient or the employer will end up not paying that for that medicine. So that's the second thing that we need to do. The third thing that we need to do is really what we talk is incentivize other developed countries to start investing in the R&D model and not have the U.S. market and the U.S. consumer be responsible funding for funding the entire R&D for the world. And there are ways to do that, and they've been proposed, and that's through trade negotiations, to ensure that countries such as United Kingdom, France, Germany, Denmark, Switzerland, Japan, South Korea, which are well-developed, and some of them have in fact, more income per capita than the United States, equally invest into research and development as the United States does. And that the entire R&D model expenditure support doesn't fall upon the U.S. consumer. 
So we discussed how uh, the government currently is looking at price control reforms uh, to lower drug prices. What would be some efficient policy solutions? And I know you mentioned this in the beginning, but how can we better promote affordability and lower patient uh, costs without restricting access to the care uh, patients need? I would go back to eliminating rebate contracting or, for the minimum, allowing patients who have a coinsurance or a deductible to pay their coinsurance or deductible at the point of sale at the pharmacy counter based upon the net price that's been negotiated on their behalf. So in every other segment of the healthcare system, Chris, patients pay based on the net price that's been negotiated on their behalf. So if you and I walk into an optometrist or a dental office or a physician office or a hospital, if we have a coinsurance or a deductible, which most of us do these days in our benefit design, we end up paying based on a price that's been negotiated on our behalf through the, whether it's the insurance company or any other entity. Pharmaceuticals is the only exception. And for some bizarre reason, Insurers and pharmacy benefit managers have convinced the employers and the government of the United States that the model that they that serves every other segment of the healthcare system should not be applied to drugs. And in my opinion, patients, when they walk into a pharmacy, they should be able to pay their coinsurance or deductible based on the net price that's negotiated that's been negotiated on their behalf. Now, is there evidence that actually that reduces out-of-pocket out of spending? Because that's the big question. Well, we can look at Optum Healthcare, which is part of United Healthcare. Optum is a pharmacy benefit manager, and they ran a pilot study for their self-insured, individual self-insured program, and they allowed patients to benefit. That means they passed through all of the rebates and concessions at the point of sale, and they based the coinsurance and their deductible based on the net price. So the discussion was, what happened then to those patients? Well, what happened to those patients is that number one, per prescription, they, they saved an average of $130 per prescription filled. So that's quite a bit of money, right? Because if you assume you're filling a prescription once a month, 12 times 130 is over $1,000 in savings. But number two, and more importantly, that nobody was thinking about is it improved adherence or compliance with medicines for those patients. So although they didn't measure what was the health outcomes or healthcare cost reductions, we know that improvements in compliance and adherence of medicines will reduce overall healthcare costs and improve patient outcomes. So in other words, patients paid less and they were more adherent to their medicines. Isn't that what we want to have in our drug benefit plans. Right. One more question, uh, Robert. So last week, we had the World Intellectual Property Day. And obviously, IP, uh, strong IPs are very important for the healthcare industry. But many have voiced the need to reform the existing patent framework. What are your thoughts on that? And how are some of the ways to strike a balance between reforming the existing patent framework and still protecting IP and innovation? So it's important that we have intellectual property and patents in the United States because that incentivizes um, innovation without a doubt. There's a direct correlation between having 
a time period where pharmaceutical companies or device companies have a monopoly and they're able to charge the amount of money they can because that incentivizes them to then put more money back into research and development and bring up more innovative drugs. Having said that, there are cases of patent abuse that take place. And this is very important because as, as an industry, as pharmaceutical industry, which I was part of previously, we have a societal contractual agreement that we will have this monopoly over a period of time, and then that will transfer and basically the IP will run out, the patent will run out, and the drugs will become extremely inexpensive and the benefit will go on perpetually, right? The drug becomes very cheap and it's perpetual benefit. However, there are cases that abuse has taken place, uh, specifically related to some of the process patents that we've seen in the biologics that need to be addressed. There are also cases where some pharma companies have uh, utilize the REMS system uh, to not allow generics to be come into the market very expeditiously. So those need to be addressed. So I'm not saying that the model is perfect, but we need to have that patent mechanism, the intellectual property protection mechanism for investment to continue. But we also need to identify the players that are abusing the model to their benefit and fix it or keep them accountable for their abuse. And with that, Robert, thank you for joining our podcast today. Thank you, Chris.